0: hello hello and welcome back or welcome for the first time to playtime My name is Andrew Barnett. I'm a child therapist who lives and works in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, and this is a podcast dedicated to children and play therapy coming at those things from a child-centered perspective. And today on the podcast, I wanted to talk about the different things that can get in the way of adults in general, whether that's therapists or parents or teachers or whoever, the things that get in the way of us being able to approach children and view children through a lens of curiosity. I think that curiosity is the bedrock of child center play therapy in terms of us not concretizing children and not judging children and always being open to their intentions and all of the different things that are happening inside of them in a room and not trying to pretend like we know what's happening, but just trying to be with what's happening, having an approach of openness. When we notice new things about someone, anyone, when I notice new things about my wife, when I notice new things about my niece, when I notice new things about myself, I feel more connected to the person who I notice that new thing in. I feel more accepting of them. Curiosity by itself doesn't mean that people are going to be more connected or that you will automatically be in better relationship with someone or notice new things about them and feel this expanse of love, but it provides the space for that to happen provides the space for new information. It provides the space for new connections rather than being so closed in and feeling like we know what's going on or we have this thing that we want to impart to children or we need them to understand a certain perspective. We need to assert dominance in some kind of way. Curiosity subverts that and allows for the possibility of a deeper and more connective relationship. Which means it's also important to focus on what are the blocks to curiosity? What are the blocks to us being able to accept things as they are? What are the conceptions that we have found ourselves stuck in that makes it difficult for us to be open to what a child is feeling, experiencing, and moving through? And the blocks that I'm choosing are simply the blocks that have shown up with people in my office, that have shown up in my own life, that have been also just parts of conversations with people that I know and run into about how they or how they view children and the human experience. And so one of the blocks that has come up for me, and it's it's kind of a subtle one, is a belief that consistency is good for children, that it's preferable to have, let's say, the structures in a child's environment be as consistent as possible or to have routines be the same day in and day out or to maybe even not go through some kind of change, whether that's parents who might feel that they would be happier getting divorced or that their current relationship isn't working for them but choose to not do that to have consistency for the children perhaps that shows up with wanting to not move somewhere from a certain school or from a certain group of friends perhaps it shows up with like gosh i can't do these things in my life because my my child needs to have a certain kind of schedule each day or each week um and there's there's a many 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 different ways that this belief is put onto children. And it's often framed to me that a child, it's better for a child to not undergo some change than to undergo a change, that change is traumatic and should therefore be avoided, or something, something to that effect. And in my experience, that idea can be very dangerous, because I can't say that change for children seems to be a bad thing most of the time i don't i don't really believe that that's true at all I've, change is often accompanied by grief for the loss of what was change is then subject to all of the emotions that grief entails including anger or maybe being withdrawn or feeling sad or feeling i don't know regretful or disbelief or despair or even a lack of acceptance that the change is really happening but those things can all be moved through and those things can all be opportunities i'm going to butcher this because i am So poor at research and detail sometimes. (laughs) I mean, I expose myself to lots of different things, but the details of those things often escapes me, and then I find myself being too lazy to look these things up. But lately I've been exposed to chaos theory, and there's this idea in chaos theory that when a system breaks apart, when an organized system breaks apart, that it appears that things have gone into chaos, but that oftentimes those elements reform into a new structure that is even more complex than the structure that came before it. It's grown in some way from being burst apart and recombining back together again. And There's something there, I think, that we can take into a different way to look at change in the lives of children, that change can be followed by a seemingly chaotic period of time with lots of emotions and new things to adjust to and a loss of identity and a loss of so many things that are comfortable, like change is uncomfortable, but there is the possibility always with change that things will come back together in a way that was more complex than what came before. And that happens with change all the time. Random, chaotic change in a child's world simply for the hell of it? Like, that's probably not ideal. Then you get a sense that the world is random and chaotic. Change without the connection and relationships and emotional space Available to go through the complex whirlpool of grief that accompanies change, yeah, that can make the change a lot more difficult. That can make the change a genuine capital T traumatic event. Taking routines and structure away from a child seemingly randomly and having a chaotic day to day experience when that child seems to genuinely feel more comfortable and settled with having some rituals and routines in their day-to-day that they can expect and therefore approach with less bristle because they are aware that this thing happens every day. Like, that's, that's great. Consistency, of course, has value, and routines have value, and rituals have value, and many of the things that I remember as a child that stand out to me in my memory are things that I did again and again and again and again. And all of those times that I did those things grew into one memory that I can access. Routines and rituals are very important to children. I only bring up change to try to balance the scales between consistency and change a little bit to not have change be this thing that's feared and vilified. While consistency is raised up as the gold standard for a child's development. At least where I'm coming from, the world appears to be changing rapidly. The world feels very different now than when I was a child. It felt very different when I was a child from when my dad was a child or when his dad was a child. And The world will continue to change rapidly, and it appears that the speed of that change is accelerating, and to highlight a little bit more why change is important, being able to handle change, being able to roll with change, being able to hold on to your identity and sense of self, and have a solid relationship to your own feelings— perhaps that's a better way to say it, while also being open to the changes, while also being curious about the changes in the world, not being stuck in the past, and not being able to handle change, and then being maybe a little rigid as a result. And that rigidity can be seen through a lens of holding on to consistency too tightly, and not having a balanced relationship between change and consistency. And I don't know the magic way to raise a child in this world that will allow them to develop into a dynamic person who is capable of holding and working with and seeing the value of both consistency and change. But I do think it is an important thing for all of us to hold inside of our minds. And I think that when we're living inside of that frame of reference, having the respect for the rituals and routines that provide some structure to every day while also recognizing that change is inevitable and sometimes change is important. And sometimes as adults, we're going to be the instigators of change in a child's world and recognizing that that will be difficult and recognizing that we can be part of that process of change with them, that we can help them with it, that we can give them the space to be able to move through it, that we can witness that process for them and that we can welcome the person that they are on the other side of that change who will be a more complex person than the person that came before. I wanted to highlight one other place where I think we can get blocked as adults in terms of viewing children with curiosity, and that's regarding the myth of chemical imbalance. And I want to start by saying that I am not trying to get into the binary conversation of pro-medication versus anti-medication, That's a tired conversation for me. I just want to be able to approach this topic with curiosity myself. Curiosity for the fact that we currently live in a world that is not out of some sci-fi novel, but that is real, where you can go to your doctor and name that you are having an emotion of some kind that you don't like, or thoughts that you don't like, or a lack of energy, or a lack of focus, or what have you, and receive a pill... To help you with that. It's an interesting thing, and I, I say that without any judgment for that. I say that just wanting to hold it, just wanting to hold it, and I think an offshoot of that is that I hear people say all the time, and was even taught this theory in graduate school, that okay, this person is struggling with X thing, and that's because they have a chemical imbalance in their brain with, I think, serotonin is the the popular one, at least. And that can be given as the sort of be-all and end-all reason why an individual is struggling with something. And I think it's important to know chemical imbalance is a myth. And by that, what I mean is that when they've done research on this and they've taken people's serotonin levels... And then they've had them do like a depression inventory that there is not a correlation between a person's serotonin level and their reported depression, their reported negative feelings. Someone with very low serotonin might be reporting that they are doing fine and a person with high serotonin might be reporting that they're not doing fine. And I'll just leave it there. That's that's what the research says you know, and I'm not, this isn't from like the dark web somewhere. This is from like psycho- psychology today and other just popular general sources in psychology that are, you know, not really radical by any means that are writing these things to let the public know that, that this doesn't actually exist. But we have this idea that it does. And it takes away from a larger conversation about that person. I When I have heard people say this, it's often the end of discussion in terms of why an individual might be struggling, and we can talk about whether even asking the question why an individual is struggling and trying to guess at it, If, if that's even particularly helpful in someone's healing, I would err on the side that it's probably often more dangerous than it is helpful to think that we know what the one problem is especially if we think that the one problem is is a chemical inside of someone's brain. It negates all of the complexity and richness of them as a person, of their interactions with other people, of the places where they're struggling the places where they're doing well, what they like to do, who they connect to, what kind of art they make, what their relationship is like with their peers and their siblings and their parents and other authority figures. What, what are their food habits like? What is their relationship to things like potty training and bedtime and chores and a schedule? Do they have a creative world? Are there certain times of day or certain times of people that set them up? Off. What kinds of shows do they like to watch? What kinds of things do they like to play? What kind of video games do they like to play? All of these are really questions that, that help us grow in our focus, that help us see more of the picture. It's like something is forming when we put all these pieces together or you look at a magic eye and you have to kind of like let your eyes go and just not really focus on anything. And when you do that, you see the picture. Like, that's what it's like to approach children with curiosity. And I can always have the fear, or at least in the conversations I've had, when, okay, a child is having a hard time, like, let's talk about him, and chemical imbalance comes up, that can feel like the end of the conversation. And so regardless of whether you take the, the research seriously on the myth of chemical imbalance... I think it's important for all of us to not pigeonhole ourselves too much in trying to think that we know what's right or what's not. And whether that's with change being held as something that is bad for children or whether that's with determining that a child's issues are as simple as a chemical imbalance and negating their complexity as a person. Approaching children with curiosity leads to something different and it often leads to a deeper relationship with them and it is through relationship that we feel safe and loved and secure and at home in this world. And that's all I've got for this episode of Playtime. Thank you so much for listening. I do really appreciate it. And if you'd like to uh, check out more of my work, head to BarnettChildTherapy.com. I've got some child-centered children's books up there. And if you want to get in touch with me, also, please do. I like hearing from people. Uh, My email, it's BarnettChildTherapy at gmail.com. And I will see you all next time.